Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for our telephone town hall to talk about Budget 2023. We'll get started here shortly. My name is Whitney Isaac, MLA for Calgary Glenmore, and I'll be the moderator for this evening's discussion. I'm honored to be joined by Premier Danielle Smith, as well as President of Treasury Board and Minister of Finance, Travis Taves. Both the Premier and Minister Taves will be your hosts tonight at this live town, telephone town hall discussion about the provincial budget, which was released just last week. For those of you listening in, either by phone or online, we want to hear from you. When you have a question that you would like to ask, please press star 3 on your keypad and you will be transferred to a live agent who will provide further instructions. Our phones are now open and we will try to get through as many questions as we can in the time that we have. And with that, let's get started. Premier and Minister Taves, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Whitney. And thanks, everyone across northern Alberta. I think we've got everyone from Red Deer North. I'm just so pleased to be able to talk about Budget 2023 with all of you and with uh, how committed our government is to supporting every Albertan, every family, every business, and every community in our great province. I also am just delighted to share this time with uh, Finance Minister Taves, who's also here tonight. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, well, thanks, Premier, and um, I'm also pleased to be, uh, be on the call tonight. And look, there's so much to talk about in Budget 23. Budget 23 continues. Um, our whole, you know, our four-year effort of positioning the province for competitiveness, investment attraction, economic growth, and diversification, but it also ensures that we're funding healthcare, education, public safety um, at appropriate levels, ensuring that uh, these core deliverables of government are well-funded. So thank you all for joining us tonight. I'm really looking forward to the evening. Yes. Thank you so much. And for all of you on the phones and online, whether you're joining us uh, from Red Deer, Edmonton, or further north, your participation in tonight's town hall is much appreciated. When you have a question you'd like to ask, please press star 3 on your keypad and you will be transferred to a live agent who will provide further instructions. We'll try to get in as many questions this evening as possible. For those listening through the online live stream, you can type your question into the dialog box and we'll do our best to answer those questions as well. Before we get into the question and answer portion of tonight's call, let's take a moment to set the stage and talk about what Budget 2023 means for Alberta and all Albertans. Premier, why don't you start us off and let the callers know what you're hoping to hear tonight? Sure, happy to do that, Whitney. I mean, I, I think one of the things I could talk about all nine is the fiscal framework. I don't want to get too uh, deep into that, but one of the things that I think we heard is that people wanted to make sure, especially since we saw so, um, uh, so much difficulty in managing the budget with our rising and falling resource revenues, I think they wanted to see some evidence of stability, that we were going to figure out a way to manage that rise and fall in, uh, in future resource revenues. And we're on a, a track now where we not only have a balanced budget legislation, but if we ever do find a, a serious decline in resource revenues again, that we'd have two years to get back into balanced budget, three years. We're going to be limiting year-over-year -year spending increases. We're going to be making sure that we've got a debt repayment plan so that we can free up those finance charges for long-term operational spending or tax cuts, and also investing in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund so that we can continue to grow that fund to a point where ultimately it's generating enough revenues to provide that stability. So I think that fiscal framework is very important, but because we have had such great stewardship 
by Minister Taves and the, and the cabinet over the last number of years, we're now in a position where we can we can make up for some of the uh, the, uh, uh, the the growth pressures that we continue to see in our province as well. And so, with Budget 2023, it is a good news budget, and I think it sets not only the ability for us to have continue to be an engine uh, of, of economic growth, but be that important economic engine for the country. It grows the economy, creates good-paying jobs, strengthens our health and education system, keeps our homes and streets safe with investments in public security. And what I feel particularly proud of is our recovery-oriented system of care for mental health and addiction. We do, of course, want to hear tonight what uh, your budget needs or what your needs are. And um, when you've heard uh, some of the announcements that we've made out of Budget 2023, how it supports your priorities. I've also had conversations with many of you over the last number of months, and I, I hope that this provides you the support that you need as we get through the inflation crisis together. We've already begun to see that some of the targeted affordability investments that we have have allowed for Alberta to have a lower rate of inflation than the rest of the country. So it is really working and is allowing us to get that renewed Alberta advantage where we continue to be the best place to live, to work, to raise our families. Uh, we all have already seen that so many people are moving from across Canada and around the, the world to take advantage of the job opportunities, our high wages, our low taxes, our affordable housing. Our Alberta is Calling campaign is really working. People are coming here in record numbers. And I think we want to just keep that going. So many corporations and businesses are also setting up shop here, uh, stimulated because of a, a pretty significant change in direction that we had when, when we formed government, which was to reduce the, the corporate tax rate, but also reduce the overall amount of, of red tape. So it's a lot easier to set up jobs and or set up companies and start uh, and start uh, building. Uh, new new job opportunities. We've got a very competitive tax environment. I know the minister will probably talk more about it. Highly skilled workforce, hardworking entrepreneurial men and women uh, across the province, and I, I think we're going to continue to attract more of that. We're going to keep the momentum going with more jobs and more uh, and more investors in the emerging sectors. It is great that we continue to see the investment in our traditional energy sector, but we're hearing a record investment in the venture capital area. We've got obviously the film tax credit, which is uh, continuing to attract productions from uh, from the United States, big budget productions like Last of Us, as well as the agri-food processing tax credit, which we hope if the budget passes that we will be able to, to start stimulating more of that investment here and so much more. We also know, however, that you and your families are worried about the future and high cost of living that's driven up the cost of groceries and utilities and gas. It's why Budget 2023 uses our economic strength to support everyone. And especially we wanted to target the most vulnerable. We wanted to target seniors, and we also wanted to tar target families with kids to be able to take the extra pressure off of those rising prices. We'll also be strengthening the healthcare system. We'll have lots more to say about it so that we can do more surgeries, have more ambulances on the road, more nurses and doctors, and uh, addressing in an historic investment uh, into primary care so everybody can have um, a family doctor and medical team that offers their primary care. We all also are making a record investment in kindergarten through grade 12 education so that we can hire thousands of more teachers and also have more education assistants on hand 
so that we can assist with some of the, the learning needs that kids have, some of the learning loss that may have occurred over the last couple of years, and also the, um, the, the stories that we're hearing about mental health crises. We're, we're doing a major investment in making sure that we address those issues. And we're also investing in your safety, keeping your families and communities safe. We're providing grants to communities that want to explore their own police force. Uh, Grand Prairie has just announced that they want to be able to establish their own local municipal police force, and there are other communities that want to do the same, so we're trying to enable that. And once again, I'm so pleased about the recovery-oriented system of care that we're taking for mental health and addiction treatment across the country. We are building out what we're calling recovery communities. Those of you in Red Deer will see that we've got our first one there, where we're going to be supporting people through the full phase of trying to get over this illness by making sure that whether it's a month or six months or a year, that they get the life skills that they need and the therapy that they need so that they can go on to be connected to a, a good paying job and get their lives back at the end of it. And then on the other side of that, we're going to have community policing hubs so, because oftentimes it's that frontline officer that is the, the first line to connect somebody to the care that they need, uh, whether it's on the street or in our correctional facilities. And so you, that's part of the reason why we've begun a pilot project to embed our sheriffs in Calgary and Edmonton. And if it works and people are happy with it, we can, can do a whole lot more of that. So I'm so pleased with Alberta's strong economic position and allowing us to, which allows us to boost support to Albertans and build an even stronger province. Look forward to hearing from you all and I'll, I'll hand it back to Whitney. Thanks so much, Premier. Uh, and for those of you who are just joining us uh, now, I want to remind everybody that I'm Whitney Isaac, MLA for Calgary Glenmore, and I'm here with Premier Danielle Smith and Finance Minister Travis Taves to talk about Budget 2023. To ask a question or comment about Alberta's provincial budget, just press star 3 on your phone to let us know you'd like to speak live on the call. If you're listening online through a web application, you can also submit a written question. So, Let's go to our first question, and our first question is from Doreen in Edmonton. Go ahead, Doreen. I'm sorry, I'm just having a trouble. <laughs> I, my question is, people that work for the public sector, the provincial government in Edmonton or in Alberta, and they had a rollback on the salary to pay down the debts, now there's some of us still reti are retired and still alive, and we are. Our income is low; it's not high. It's just above the poverty line, and we are not qualified for home care assistance. Does the government has the, the new government has anything in their budget to help this, us people like me? Thanks, Doreen, for your thoughts, and uh, and I know it's it is really tough when we're seeing the the increase in the price of of everything. It it is part of the reason why, and I, I hope that you qualify for this. I, I I think you said that you were senior, so over age 65. Um, with our affordability payments, you can go online if you need some help to do that. Uh, we have the ability for our registries and our FCSS offices to be able to help you sign up so that you can receive a, a monthly payment of $100 a month until for, for six months to be able to help defray some of those costs. We, we also have price protection in place for cost of home heating as well as rebates available for your electricity bill and also just taking the, the fuel tax off of gasoline and diesel has 
allowed for us to have the lowest fuel prices in the country. And that goes into the cost of everything, whether you're driving yourself or whether you're taking public transit uh, or whether you're just uh, being able to, to go to the grocery store. Everything that, that gets delivered to uh, to the grocery stores is, is uh, going to have a lower price because of all of those additional supports and that reprieve. And when you look at what you see here in Alberta, I think I've seen that our prices are somewhere around a dollar twenty-five, whereas in British Columbia they're a dollar seventy-five, so fifty cents difference on every single price of, of uh, every single liter of gasoline. It makes a huge difference in in the cost of of everything that you purchase, and so those are the things that we are attempting to do. Um, as for home care, you're very right. One of the things that we have determined is that the, especially after we've gone through the last few years, is that the the very safest place for a senior to be is in the comfort of their own home, getting home care, and uh, and we want to make sure that we enable that. So our budget is going to put a priority on ensuring that seniors like you are able to access home care as the first choice. And so uh, just give us a little bit of time as we roll that out, but it is our intention that anyone who needs to have that, that support of living at home is going to be able to, to access those services. Well said, Thank Premier. I'll, I'll maybe uh, just add on one additional piece, and that is uh, this year we're going to be indexing our, our, our Alberta seniors' benefits. So lower-income seniors who qualify for that benefit uh, will get in on a, a very major uh, indexing calculation. It'll be over 6% or, pardon me, at 6% for this upcoming year. And that's important because, Premier, as you've, you know, I think pointed out, it's it's individuals on a fixed income that really are pressed with this uh, affordability challenge. And so the combination of, of the indexing of the Alberta Seniors Benefit, along with uh, the support that the Premier noted with the one-time affordability payments, $100 a month for individuals, um, $200 a month for a couple, uh, along with the electricity um, rebates, uh, which are quite significant, those two will hopefully provide some relief. But, you know, times of inflation are tough. It's tough to make the end of the month. We've really looked to provide support in Budget 23. Thanks, Premier and, and Minister. And Doreen, thanks for that great question. For those of you just joining us online, uh, please uh, make sure if you have a question, you write it, uh, you write it uh, the question in on the online uh, a web application. For those of you joining us by phone, please remember to press star 3 if you have a question. Let's go to our next question now. I have uh, Brett from Hinton who's asked me to read the question. Explain this Alberta fund to me. What's the difference between that and the Heritage Fund? I get saving, but people are struggling now, do we really need to have two savings funds? All right, well, that's that's a great question, Brett. The Alberta Fund is not a duplicate of the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, but that's a, that's a really fair question. The Alberta Fund is essentially going to be a holding fund. It's going to be a place where we can put any surplus that is not used for debt repayment in the year that uh, the surplus is achieved. Any remaining amount goes into what we call the Alberta Fund. And that Alberta Fund will be a holding account. There's going to be three, ultimately three approved uses uh, for funds in the Alberta Fund. Number one, 
uh, it can be used for future debt repayment. We can hold the cash in that account to be applied against debt that will be maturing in future years. Uh, the, the second uh, approved use is to transfer uh, funds to the Heritage Savings Trust Fund from the Alberta Fund. Again, the Alberta Fund is really a holding account that has structure. So we're not just putting it in, you know, general revenue or in the, in the general bank account. And the third use is this. Uh, any funds in the Alberta Fund can be used for one-time non-reoccurring expenditures. Now, these expenditures are still subject to an appropriations bill and the budget process. They're also subject to all the other fiscal rules that I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about tonight. So again, the Alberta Fund is effectively, essentially, a holding account uh, that has parameters, that has structure around it to ensure that future governments uh, manage uh, surpluses with diligence, uh, prudentially, and ensure that we're uh, making investments in the public interest. Thanks so much for that great question, Brett, and for the answer, Minister Taves. Next, we have Wendy. Uh, please go ahead, Wendy. Hello. Uh, my name is Wendy, of course, and I'm actually uh, very impressed with the decision on the recovery communities, as it's quite overdue, because um, we are more focused on the harm reduction of everything rather than on the recovery portion. Now, where my concern comes in is I actually toured the facility a couple weeks ago with Ben, and I'm wondering if, like, it's great that we go from start to finish with, with everything, but what are we actually doing to focus on the trauma and getting to the root of that trauma with the individuals? Like, has Wendy, it, it's such a... It's such a great question, and I should mention, so the Red Deer Recovery Community is the first one, and we are having a group called Evergreen operate it for us, and I should say that they have a 77 to 85% success rate in getting people through their program on the other side and into recovery. So we wanted to make sure that we were using a model that was going to be successful. And the notion behind it is that you do have to do exactly as you say, um, have people confront what it is that brought them to addiction in the first place. So there's going to be a, so I'll, tell, I'll explain it for people who didn't have a chance to visit it. We have 50 beds on one side for the men and 25 beds on the other side for the women and it's separated. They each have a kitchen and they, what will happen is that in the morning, one class will do therapy and then in the afternoon, they'll do chores and, and vice versa. They will learn how to shop. They will learn how to cook. They will learn how to do um, basic repair. They'll take care of the facility. They'll have a community garden, <clears throat> maybe even do a little farmer's market. And the notion behind it is to build a person's capacity so that they can get back to being able to live independent lives. And everybody's going to be different. This is why we call it a recovery-oriented system of care, because some people have to build that recovery capital. If you've got loving family and loving friends, if you've got a good job to go to, those are things that build capital that help to keep you on the path of recovery. Those who don't have that, it, they need the time to build it up. But you're 100% right, Wendy, that the, the, the essential part of it 
is going to be that therapy, one-on-one therapy, group therapy, uh, peer therapy. One of the things that we've discovered is that recovering uh, addicts are the ones who are best able to, because they know exactly what the person's going through, but they can also give hope uh, to somebody who's in the throes of addiction that, that there really is recovery on the other side. It's going to be an essential element to it. So this is why I think it's it's such a unique model. It's being called the Alberta model. People are coming from all over North America to see what we're doing. I should add one more because we're working with the, the Blood Tribe to have a special custom-built facility on First Nations because they have a bit of uh, they have other additional elements of the building design that they want us to build in, and we'll also bring in Indigenous. Uh, therapists to work with our conventional therapists so everybody can be trained in this system and ultimately it will be a hundred percent indigenous run there are other communities that have expressed other nations that have expressed an interest in using that design so uh, stay tuned because uh, over the the course of the next couple of years we'll have uh, 10 of these rolled out and i'm 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 very hopeful that it's, it's really going to make the difference in everybody's life Thanks for that uh, fantastic question. For those of you online, please make sure that if you have a question, you put it into the web application uh, in writing. If you are on the phone, please don't forget to uh, press star three to let us know that you'd like to ask a question. This next question is from Stan in Edmonton. Go ahead, Stan. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I left you a message about it, but um, our biggest problem, I think, and it's not totally budget, but uh, is law and order catch and release people. It's getting so scary that I don't even like to go out at night. I don't know how much you have, how much you can do, but uh, this, something is terribly wrong there, and crime is going on troll, I think, and I think I mean, most most people in Alberta and probably you guys do too. The other thing that I'm concerned about is health care. don't want to see too much American style up. Uh, it just doesn't work well in the world as far as the best health care is, is what we've got, I think. Just make sure you fund it and make sure it's done right. And uh, why can't, uh, have you thought of doing anything like they do in America? In the, they're doing down in the uh, Maritimes, going to allow doctors to come in without spending a year and writing exams, come in from the States and practice in Canada, I think, and other countries come in, and then we probably could get doctors because my actually my niece is trying to be a doctor it's really hard to get in it's just just about have to go to australia or new zealand or one of the countries of america to get uh, somebody to finish up their training and that something's wrong there too hopefully you can it's not all budget but it does all come through the budget requirements thank you very much Stan, great questions, great questions. I, I'm sure the Premier will want to make some comments um, for sure on your health care question. One thing I will note, you know, as as you've identified, I think correctly identified, is uh, in Alberta, it's so hard to get into our schools of medicine. Quite frankly, it's it's hard to get into our nursing programs. There's There have been far more interested Albertans, uh, bright young Albertans, looking to pursue a, a career in health care, whether it's in medicine or nursing. And we just haven't had the, the spaces or capacity. This budget will fund an additional 2,000 spaces for uh, RNs, LPNs, and healthcare aides, uh, critical at a time that we really need additional capacity. And it just makes sense because you know I understand five out of six bright young Albertans wanting to pursue a, a career in nursing can't get in. 
and yet we're short of nurses. So this budget is going to go uh, quite a distance to remedy that problem in the intermediate and longer term. And in, the, in our schools of medicine, we're funding an additional 120 seats in both our School of Medicine in, in at the University of Alberta and at the University of Calgary. And that will make a difference. In fact, that's almost a 40% increase in capacity. Again, that will simply make it easier for Albertans who want to, want to become a physician to get into one of our great schools. You've identified the fact that some Albertans have gone to uh, accredited universities outside of Alberta. Uh, I know of a uh, individual who went to Australia, another one who went to the U.S., tried to come back this last summer and do a residency actually in Grand Prairie in my hometown. Both were turned away because we didn't have capacity. It was really frustrating. One ended up doing their residency down in the Lower Mainland in Vancouver, and one went back to the U.S., and chances are we may never get them back. This budget also includes additional resources for uh, increased residency capacity. Now, obviously, we need cooperating physicians, and there are some other logistics that Minister Copping and, and Nick Ladies are working through, but this budget includes some additional funding there as well. Now, on the issue of law and order, look, I'm I'm from rural Alberta, and it sounds like you're you're from the city here in Edmonton. But, you know, whether you're in Edmonton, Calgary, or in rural Alberta, crime's a challenge. Crime's an issue. There's no doubt about it. And in this budget, we're increasing funding to our public safety, to Mike Ellis's ministry, by 13%. That will immediately put 235 additional sheriffs on the ground, more boots on the ground in all of our communities, certainly rural Alberta, but as well as in our large centres, both Calgary and Edmonton, because uh, we're going to be working more closely with municipalities to ensure that we have enough enforcement capacity to ensure law and order. Look, Stan, I would say this. A core deliverable of government is to ensure a reasonable level of public safety and, secondly, a fair and efficient justice system. And, you know, you talk about the revolving door syndrome. That's been a real syndrome here in Alberta. Uh, you know, one of the issues has been we simply lack capacity in our court system. Granted, you know, COVID kind of backed it up as it backed up a lot of things, but we can't use that as an excuse. This budget increased the funding for our justice ministry by 10%. We're going to hire more Crown prosecutors, more uh, court stenographers and staff so that we have uh, enough capacity in our justice system so everybody gets their day in court. Because right now, there's some cases that are triaged, lower priority court cases are not getting heard. You know, Stan, in my view, every perpetrator needs their day in court. We need to ensure that we have a justice system that can that can accomplish that. And let me just add to that because I can I can tell you that Ontario Premier Doug Ford absolutely had it after the murder of one of his OPP officers. And it was first-degree murder. And it was on a catch-and-release. The guy who's been now charged with first-degree murder was out on bail on a number of conditions, including, including that he was supposed to remain in his residence and not possess any firearms. Well, that, that didn't do much good. He should have been kept behind bars. So the, the Premier 
has has worked with all of us across the country to sign a letter saying we've got to go back and revisit these changes the federal government made to bail conditions. It's creating a catastrophe. We're just in the in the process of trying to get some of those numbers about the impact it's having on the streets in Calgary and Edmonton. But you feel it. You you said so yourself. Like you just feel fearful going out onto the streets at night, and that shouldn't be the case. So do know it's part of the reason why. We have embedded our, our sheriffs in Calgary and Edmonton in order to be able to start addressing some of those issues. We want to be compassionate for those who have a, an addiction and uh, a treatable condition of, and mental health, but we're not going to put up with organized crime. In fact, I think um, Mike Ellis today announced that he's got a special unit that he's now creating out of the sheriffs to go after these, these gangsters, the gangs and the organized crime that are causing so so much mayhem. The la- The other thing I'd say is, you said that we don't want an American-style system, and I agree with you. The Americans don't even want an American-style system. They've been trying to reform their system for years to be a lot more like ours. But I, I don't want you to, to believe at all that in any circumstance you will ever pay out of pocket for a doctor or a hospital visit. That is, that is one of the sacred principles of the Canada Health Act, is that you will not pay for those things. But what we have found is that we are able to get a lot of surgeries done by asking surgeons to create their own surgical teams and their own surgical facilities. I just went and visited one in Edmonton, and it was, it's got 12 different operating bays. They've been operating since November. Ultimately, when they're done, they'll be able to do 8,500 surgeries a year, knees, hips, ankles, shoulders. It's 100% integrated into our system, so you, um, if you are on the queue, you don't jump the queue. You just go to either a public hospital or this facility, depending on what comes up. And uh, it's allowing us overall to be able to do 20% of our surgeries this way. And why would we do this? I can tell you this particular facility cost the owners $25 million, that's only with an M, $25 million to set up. They, they're shouldering that cost themselves. They got it up, set up very quickly. When we go out and try to build new sur- surgical capacity for a hospital, it costs a billion or $2 billion or $3 billion. And so this allows us to get more surgical facilities on site faster so we can start clearing that backlog and uh, just, uh, just allowing us to, to, to treat patients faster. And still, no one ever pays out of pocket. So I, I, I think you should just give this uh, new approach that we're taking a chance, because I think it's going be, to be a real success. A big thank you to everyone uh, who's participating tonight, and thanks for that great question. Uh, for those of you on the phone line, please press star 3 if you have a question. And if you're online, you can uh, write your question into the app. The next question we're going to take is from Melanie in Sherwood Park. Go ahead, Melanie. Hello. I'm just uh, interested to hear about the digital ID. I'm just curious why Alberta accepted that so quickly without a lot of transparency for um, citizens to know what um, other outcomes might be tied to a digital ID in terms of digital currency and things like that. I just don't think that people know enough about it for Alberta accepted on behalf of all of its citizens. And I'm just curious to know if there's a chance to pause that to get public response. Well, Melanie, I think you're getting some misinformation. I had said that under no circumstances would we ever accept a digital ID as condition for getting money from the federal government. I made it very clear. It's against the law. We're not allowed to share your private medical information. And so I accepted the money 
that Ottawa offered because there's no digital ID. They never asked for it, and even if they had, we wouldn't have given it to them. So I'm, I, I, I'm not sure where you're getting your information from, but be, but be absolutely clear that what we are getting is 518 million new dollars to be able to start addressing the needs of Albertans, and the, so we're going to spend it on uh, mental health and adolescent recovery on mental health issues. We're going to spend it on home care and continuing care. And we're going to uh, spend it on building up the primary care system. The only information that we sh- ev- that we share is is information that's publicly available, and it's through a group called the Canadian Institute for Health Information. We've been doing this for decades. We'll keep on doing that, but that's the only way we're going to be sharing information. The government, the federal government, will never have your personal medical data. It's just not allowed under our laws. Thanks for that incredible question, and thanks for everyone for participating tonight. We are here tonight talking about Budget 2023 with Minister Travis Taves and, of course, Premier Danielle Smith. And we're going to go to our next question from Mark in Fort Mac. Go ahead, Mark. Hello, how are you? Yeah, Mark Robichaud from Fort McMurray. Uh, my question is that the oil that we extract here is ethical. Every company out here is doing their best to make it as environmentally friendly as we possibly can. And the oil that we extract here is just not for big trucks, cars, and all that. I mean, it goes to petrochemicals, plastics, etc. So why cannot we be the leader, step forward, and be that person, country, to produce that in the best way possible that when 20, 30 years from now, when petrochemicals is still needed, we are the go-to place. And what are we doing to promote that? Mark, that's an excellent question. That's a question that we've asked as a government here the last number of years. I know um, certainly even in the last few months as we've considered this budget and our competitiveness broadly, It's a question that we've asked again. Mark, we believe that Alberta is naturally situated to be extremely competitive in the petrochemical manufacture and processing sector. That's why we came out with the Alberta Petrochemical Incentive Program. This program ensures that we can compete, in fact, outcompete, I believe, Louisiana and Texas and other Gulf states that offer incentives for petrochemical manufacturing. And and we're really seeing a great response here. We've got tens of billions of dollars of investment lined up for hydrogen production manufacture in Alberta. And we know we can be competitive uh, in, in the hydrogen space. Uh, Imperial Oil is coming forward with a renewable uh, diesel manufacturing processing plant uh, just outside or in the heartland here just outside of Edmonton. Uh, when I, when we talk about hydrogen, we can talk about air products that are putting up a $1.6 billion hydrogen processing facility, again, just outside of Edmonton. So on the petrochemical manufacture and processing space, we're very, very competitive. You, you probably know that we have a refinery that ultimately produces diesel and uses heavy oil, uses the bitumen that we produce in in the Fort McMurray region, it's called the Northwest Upgrader, Northwest Refinery. That that is um, you know jointly owned by the province of Alberta as well as some other energy in, uh, industry interests. 
And that refinery has become fully operational over the last couple of years. It's, it's uh, creating uh, manufacturing tens of thousands of liters of product uh, every day right now. And so we are working in the refining space even um, directly as we speak. But, you know, you, you ask a question around the very sustainable oil that we produce in Alberta, and it's absolutely right. I believe Alberta has the most responsible energy industry in the world. We pay attention to environmental, social, and governance issues. We're world leaders uh, on all of those issues. The last barrel of oil that the world uses should come from Alberta. And that's why we've got a premier and a cabinet, a government, that really defends the energy industry across this country. You know, at a time when energy security is top of mind with our trading partners, our allies around the world, to have a federal government with um, anti-energy policies, policies that ultimately are called for unrealistic emissions caps, policies that put an altogether unrealistic price of carbon uh, on the industry, policies that result in bills like Bill C-69, our Federal Impact Assessment Act, which basically has put a stop to uh, large projects in, in the country. To have those kinds of policies at, the, at a time like this is not only irrational, it's grossly irresponsible. This government, this Alberta government, will fight for the Alberta energy industry, not only for the benefit of Albertans, Mark, but for the benefit of all Canadians. Thanks for that uh, great question, Mark. And we're going to go on to an online question now. And uh, this is from Martin Wong. And it says, does the UCP have a plan to implement a mandated annual investment and dividend structure to the Heritage Trust Fund? Well, why don't I start and give you a chance to grab a drink of water, Finance Minister, and then I, I, I told Whitney, I wonder if we're going to have the same answer to this question. So let me answer it first, then I'd love to see how you answer it. One of the, the things that um, I, I wrote on years ago when I was at the Herald, and it was an idea that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation had put forward, is if we were to just start investing the, uh, the investment income in the fund, it, um, I think at the time, that was back in the 2000s, they'd projected that it would be worth something like $150 billion by now. I think the finance minister has more up-to-date um, numbers than that. But, but when you think about that, if, if we have a, a $100 billion fund or a $200 billion fund or $300 billion fund, and it is generating significant revenues each year, that's when we're in a position to be able to provide the kind of dividends that, uh, that you were questioning about. The thing is, you've got to be patient, though. You can't start uh, di distributing dividends before you've had a chance to build the fund up. And so I would hope that what we would see is that we would set some kind of target that we want to get to collectively as, a, as Albertans. And then once we reach that target, then we could start having a conversation about whether we could distribute some of those dollars back in the form of dividends. I think that's a bit a ways into the future. But the, the fact of the matter is we've started now we have started now investing the, all the investment income back in that fund, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that we're going to get there quickly. One of the things that the minister mentioned as well is that as we have surpluses, we've got the option to pay down debt or put it into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund or use it for one-time spending. So I suspect we can accelerate that growth, and I'd be, I'd be looking forward to having that conversation in the future. 
Premier, I have to say we align on that one. I would love to build that Heritage Savings Trust Fund. As an Albertan, I'd love to see that fund um, get to the level where we could, in fact, be using perhaps dividends from that fund, earnings from that fund, and, and distribute those earnings back to Albertans in the form of a dividend. But, uh, Premier, you've nailed it. We've got to build that fund up first. And the legislation that I introduced into the House today will ensure that earnings from the Heritage Savings Trust Fund stay in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. That's step number one. When we talk about managing a surplus, that's our number one priority. And uh, we we did, uh, I asked my department to provide me with an estimate of the balance of the Heritage Savings Trust Fund had we from day one simply reinvested all the earnings into that fund. No additional additional deposits other than what we've put in to date. But uh, what would the balance be if all of the earnings were retained in the fund? Well, the fund today is just over $18 billion. And the fund would be approaching $300 billion if all of the earnings had been left in the fund. That would be generating close to $20 billion a year in earnings for Albertans year over year. So you know what? We, we haven't reinvested our earnings to date, at least not materially. The best day to start is today, and we're doing that in Budget 23. Thanks for that uh, great question and answers from both Premier Danielle Smith and Minister Travis Taves. Just a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question on the phone, press star 3. If you're online, you can send in a written question. And our next question is from Hale in Edmonton. Go ahead, Hale. I heard all the Premier was saying about the budget 2023, and it seems that it makes sense, almost all of it. But something that I didn't hear about is something to do with the environment protection, and I didn't hear any budget allocated to that for innovation because the the environment, the climate is changing from year to year and it's not not good happening. So I, what do you what do you suggest to do about it? Well thanks Hale for the for the question. I th- I spent a lot of time talking about the environment and emissions and what we're going to do to make sure that we continue to attract investment into our energy sector. And so one of the mentions that we made in the budget is that we're going to work with the federal government on an extension of what we call our Alberta Petroleum Incentive Program so that companies can keep more of what they earn to invest in carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology. This is is really, the I think, the future of our energy industry is that as they're developing, they're going to find more and more ways to reduce emissions and then be able to either capture them and bury them underground, put them into useful products. They're also going to be starting to use new fuels like small modular nuclear reactors. I think is there's, there's some interest in doing that when those become ready and available. Also, uh, building out our hydrogen economy, that's going to require us to capture emissions and also bury them underground. But also, I I feel like we have a a huge opportunity for working with our federal counterparts in British Columbia to export 
LNG and reduce emissions around the world, the, the, the issue you talk about is a global problem. And so we could do a lot of good by helping India and China and other large uh, polluters re reduce their overall emissions. And so that's the other aspect that we want to do. We, the, the thing to keep in mind, and I think uh, Minister Taves mentioned this earlier, is that the, the future is a, a, a transition away from emissions. It's not a transition away from these fuels because natural gas is going to be incredibly valuable to build out petrochemicals, plastics, and hydrogen. And our bitumen is going to be even more valuable to build out asphalt and other types of products. You could, I, I've, I've heard proposals where we may be able to use it to create carbon nanotubes that can be a replacement for steel. So I think what you'll, you'll see, Hale, is that in the future, we, we're going to continue to have very high-value products, but we'll, we'll see that we're, we're using... Uh, using them in a different way. And, and I think that that's going to be in sync with our federal aspirations to reduce emissions and certainly in sync with our, our global aspirations. So I spent a lot of time on that one. And you'll, you'll hear more as we, as we start collaborating with the federal government to, to get, to get some, some, uh, some, some policy that's in alignment on that. Thanks for that uh, incredible question. And uh, just a reminder, if you're on the phone, star three to ask a question. If you're online, please write the question into the web application. Next, we're going to go to Tom, who's in Fort Saskatchewan. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for taking my question here. And my question is, uh, this is an old uh, subject matter, and it's what and how are we going to deal with the, the transfer payment issue that's existed uh, for approximately 60 years uh, with the, you know, basically the, the transfer of wealth from Alberta to Eastern Canada, which totals roughly, it's over $600 billion. Now, the governments over the past have, have they, they've kicked this around for years, and now Danielle Smith has come up, thank you for this, for your position on this, that you're going to finally deal with this matter uh, in an aggressive manner, which is, boy, it's about time somebody's stepping up for Alberta and Western Canada. Well, let me take that one then. Because um, I can I can tell you Tom that it, I, I've just I've just been working with my ministry uh, intergovernmental relations on a, a an equalization paper that proposes how we would significantly reduce and I think if uh, we can get our counterparts in the rest of the country to agree ultimately eliminate equalization and so I'm I'm just I'm just working on how we um, how we might roll that out. But one of the things that we discovered is that the way the formula works is it's biased against Alberta uh, and it's biased in favor of Quebec. The thing that drives me crazy is that they presume that we have great capacity because we're not charging a, a, a PST, but they, when they do the formula, they, they, they give us uh, they, they say they give they evaluate our ability to, to to raise revenues as if we were charging a PST. But then in Quebec, Quebec subsidizes their electricity massively because they're getting it for almost nothing from the Churchill Falls deal they signed years ago. And so they 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 would be generating if they charged competitive rates for their electricity that would generate I think about eight billion dollars more for their government which is pretty close to what we're transferring to them in equalization so we've got to end this approach where we're creating these perverse incentives 
for Quebec to keep its natural gas in the ground, not develop out its economy, because we're, we're assessing their ability to raise taxes based on arbitrary uh, decisions, and we're also assessing their cost of delivering services based on arbitrary decisions. Right now, we're over-equalizing. I think we all know that, that Quebec brags about being debt-free, uh, or no, about deficit-free. They've been running surpluses. They actually have started building their own sovereign wealth fund that is almost bigger than our Heritage Savings Trust Fund. How galling is that? That They get huge transfers through equalization. They have so much additional dollars that they're able to start using it to build up a fund at the same time as saying that they don't want our, uh, our, uh, the products from our pipeline. So we're, we're going to take a, a very aggressive approach on this. We got a mandate from the people that they want us to, to address it. And when I've, when I've confronted this issue in the past, I know that Quebec always has a position paper going into equalization talks. Well, we're going to have a position paper going into equalization talks as well. And we're going to be pushing this ahead. Even if we don't succeed in, the, in getting all of it reduced, I can, I can guarantee you we're going to make a very strong case that we've got to stop over-equalizing and start creating an, an environment for growth so that everybody has an incentive to increase their GDP per capita so that we can all be able to, to get more and more equal. So that's what we're working on right now, and you'll see it very soon. Thanks for that great question, Tom, and for that fantastic answer, Premier. We have a question next from Trevor. It's a question that's uh, coming in to us from online, so I'm going to read it out uh, from Minister Taves. What is the Rural Health Facilities Revitalization Program? All right, great, great question. And if you live in rural Alberta, it's, uh, that's a program that's going to interest you. You know, we have um, so much of our culture fabric, uh, so many of our communities are in rural Alberta. And we have a healthcare system that's not limited to our you know, major cities and centers, but we do have a healthcare system uh, scattered throughout rural Alberta, and we're looking to strengthen it. We recognize that you know, delivering healthcare in a decentralized way, delivering healthcare in our communities is really important to our residents and results in ultimately a better quality of care. So that's one reason why we have set aside significant funding for this rural uh, healthcare revitalization. This will ensure that we are able to upgrade facilities uh, in rural Alberta. It's going to ensure that we're able to purchase necessary equipment uh, in rural Alberta, again, so that we can deliver first world healthcare in rural Alberta. You know, there's a tendency, and there's been a tendency, I would suggest, probably over the last couple of decades to in an increasing way, centralized healthcare delivery. I've, I've observed it. I've, I've observed that trend even the last few years. You know, right now, as we uh, as we really look to evaluate healthcare delivery in the province, decentralization is a key theme. In my view, and I, I know the premier shares um, my view on this. We really need to see a decentralization of decision-making again. We need to empower our frontline healthcare professionals that are working on the front lines and ensure that they're able to make the changes they need, practical changes that make sense, that result in more efficiency and better healthcare. And in the same way, we need to ensure that we have facilities across the province, right through rural Alberta, where we can deliver first world healthcare. 
Thanks so much for that uh, great question and answer from Minister Taves. Of course, we're here with uh, Premier Danielle Smith and Minister Travis Taves talking about Budget 2023. The next question is from Thane in Edmonton. Go ahead, Thane. Hi. I had a couple points I wanted to touch base on. Uh, we spoke about healthcare and what we're doing to you know, get more doctors, get more hospital beds. And then we also touched base on crime, hearing a few people that are concerned with rising crime rates. And I wanted to know what kind of the plan was or if we had any plan in place to touch base at, I guess, the core of these issues. I mean, with healthcare, are we doing anything to support a healthy, really kind of vibrant and pushing that education on diet? Uh, exercise, good diet, all these things that can really help improve. I, I know a lot of people deal with a lot of other issues, but I'm just saying that if we push diet and really good health and exercise on our community as well, that could attack the core of the problem a little bit more. And as well for crime, uh, with rising crime rates, different things coming, I mean, possible recession coming up, that could help spike that a bit. But what are we doing to improve the quality of life? Um, and the ability to get really good paying jobs and just increase the standard of living for more people in Alberta to create a really strong community and just increase the overall happiness, you know, opportunities available to help everybody out. It kind of all ties in together. And then I also want to touch base on this. I added this later on in my question, but you touch base on investing the budget and then possibly paying dividends to Albertans. And I would say that, you know, Take a thought to, uh, you know, some people, for me, if you were to pay a $400 or $1,000 dividend once a year, I'd say whatever it was, I mean, what, how far does that money really go for one household or one person? It's not really a lot of money. So even thinking about taking that and saying, okay, if we keep all this money and then whether we reinvest it into the fund and let that keep growing or taking that money and reinvesting it into the cities and the towns and the province in general to help grow it even further, it would kind of help, you know, it would help Thanks. everybody a lot more in my opinion. Thanks for that great question. Thane, yeah. I'll answer your last one first. I think it's probably 20 years from now that we'll be having the conversation about what to do with the investment income from the Heritage Savings Trust Fund because at the moment we've got to keep those dollars invested in the fund so that it grows. So let, why don't we pause that one and we can we can fight that out in 20 years about what the best way of, of getting it back to people are. But as for your, um, your approach on how do we support people in their wellness decisions, I, I'd come up with the idea during my leadership for a health spending account. And the way, the place I got that idea from was the last time I was elected, I uh, realized that politicians all have a health spending account paid for by the taxpayer. I think it's $950, and it goes to pay for all the things that are not currently covered by, by health care, whether it's sort of uh, the extra amount that you have to pay on pharmaceutical drugs or glasses or um, your chiropractic visit or physiotherapy. I thought, well, you politicians have this, then why shouldn't we try to find a way to get all Albertans to have access to this fund? Because a lot of the things that we don't end up covering are things that promote wellness, uh, whether it's nutritionist or dietitian or a counselor. So that was, was one idea. And in conversation with my, my caucus, they've also raised the idea that there's many companies that offer a wellness account and it, it, to cover the exact same things that you're talking about, um, whether it's uh, classes at a gym or, 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 or some way of, of being able to uh, uh, approach 
the um, your your health from a, a perspective of keeping yourself well. And so I'm I'm open minded about that. I, I think the most important thing though is to get the health spending account set up because so many people have other practitioners that they like to go to and we want to find a way that people can be investing in prevention but I'm, I'm very open-minded about seeing if there's a way that we can get a wellness account as a, a second step to that because I, I think you're very right so much of wellness is about diet it's about a good good nutrition exercise stress release getting getting good sleep at night and I, I think if we can find a way to nudge people in that direction then it will absolutely improve quality of life and health and reduce the pressure on the healthcare system. Thanks so much for that great question, Thane, and for the fantastic answer, Premier. Next, we're going to go to JC from the Capital Region for a question to Minister Taves. Go ahead, JC. Uh, well, the question is to whomever would be interested in answering. Um, just uh, the only time uh, AISH has ever really been close to a livable uh, wage in an economy was in 2012 uh, when it was bumped up a full $400 to uh, 1588 uh 1588 in today's dollars would be $2018 but by 2018 it had lost 9.5% of its actual value then in 2019 Kenny de-indexed age payments right at the beginning of the pandemic and the inflation on everything went through the roof and remains high on all basic goods like foods. Having only applied the one-year CPI adjustment, bringing the age uh, payments to 1785, it still leaves these payments well below the poverty rate in the current economy after the last few years of inflation and lack of CPI adjustment. Um, 100% of all uh, that check still goes to the basic needs of an ACE client, uh, with the only flexibility being uh, for expenses coming out of the food budget or rent if you can take that risk. Do you think it's fair that the richest province in the country continues to underfund severely handicapped Albertans when you give billions every year to rich multinational corporations and plan to bury billions more into another slush fund because you guys drained the heritage thanks. fund to only... JC, thanks for the question and, and um, uh, thanks for uh, giving us so much information. We're going to have Minister Taves uh, sure. give us an answer here. Sure, JC, th thanks for the call. And uh, look, uh, I, I will say this, Albertans are compassionate and uh, Albertans, I believe, put a very, very high priority on ensuring that we're assisting our most vulnerable. And that's, that's why Alberta's um, support for our severely handicapped has been about $400 a month higher than the next nearest province. And that's why even, you know, in 2019, when we had to get our spending under control, we were spending $10 billion more than other provinces. We didn't reduce our support for the severely handicapped. We kept our age payments $400 higher than the next closest province. That was important. That was critically important. This year, of course, uh, those payments are being indexed. And they're, as you noted, they're going up to $1,785 a month. Again, uh, by far and away, the highest support levels uh, of any province. On top of that, in our affordability payments, we've identified, of course, families, seniors and our most vulnerable, including those on H, as eligible for the $100 a month support level. Again, we want to ensure 
that we're supporting the most vulnerable amongst us during this time of inflation. So, JC, thank you for your question. Again, um, it's a high priority of this government because it is a high priority for Albertans to be compassionate and to ensure that we're supporting our most vulnerable. And let me just add to that because I, I didn't know how much more we were paying than other provinces. Um, I think I just heard the finance minister say $400 more per month. And, and part of what has happened is that because we, we do offer that extra level of support, we're actually getting penalized by the federal government for giving our age recipients more money than elsewhere because they have this um, rent program that our our seniors, community, and social services minister Jeremy Nixon has written to um, uh, Ahmed Hussein about, and they have a rent support program that would give $500 as a rent top-up, but you have to make less than $20,000 to receive it. So now with our increase, our age recipients are receiving $21,444, so the federal government won't support them with this rent top-up. In addition, we, we make sure that we have a very high basic personal exemption so that our lowest income individuals don't pay taxes onto about, I think it's about 21000 worth of income. The federal government starts taxing people at about uh, $10,000. So I think what we need to do is work with our federal counterpart to bring their policies more in alignment with ours so that people can keep more of what they earn and then be able to, to, to have these additional pressures met. And they shouldn't be penalizing us because because we, um, we, we, just because our uh, age clients are, are making uh, slightly more than elsewhere, they, they end up with a really big penalty because of this arbitrarily low number the federal government has set. So those are the kind of priorities that, that we need to work on next. Thanks for that. Next, we're going to go to Christine, who's in Whitecourt. Um, she's uh, written a question in, and it is, what's in the budget for small businesses a lot of people around here own or work for small businesses. Minister, do you want to take that first? Sure, I will. Uh, that, that's a great question, Christine. And you, you live in a great community. Of course, uh, I'm back and forth to the capital um, all the time, Grand Prairie Way, back down to Edmonton. And so I'm driving through White Court all the time. And it's a, it's a great community. And we have a great MLA there in Martin Long. I just have to say, he represents you folks so well, represents the uh, business sectors in that area. Look, uh, there, there's, that, that's a really big question around small businesses. Small business creates so much uh, economic activity in this province, and, and it's, it's really the economic driver in so much of rural Alberta, uh, as well as our urban centers. Small businesses really matter. And and, you know, we have such a vibrant business community because of the entrepreneurial culture in this province. And so much of that is manifested uh, through small businesses in our community. We know that during the pandemic, many, you know, experienced setbacks. It was a hard couple of years for so many of our businesses. And, and so while there's no way all the losses were offset, uh, we did work hard as a government to ensure that we were providing uh, support where we could and we certainly provided more support from a business standpoint uh, to our small businesses than, than any other province, which was important to us. Now, a few things right now with small business. Number one, you know, our fuel tax suspension program is a, is a program that not only benefits households uh, and, you know, benefits us personally, but it benefits our small businesses as well. I've had a number of uh, 
trucking company owners, managers come and tell me what that's made um, to their business in, in terms of improving their bottom line. Uh, and it's really, really been significant. And, you know, transportation costs affect almost every business, either directly or indirectly. And so that's a tangible way that we've been able to support uh, small businesses and business in general right across the province. And that it's not um, a small level of support. On an annualized basis, it's $1.3 billion of additional support to businesses. Again, we believe that's really important. You know, in Budget 23, there's another um, measure that we've maintained. And, you know, the Premier threatened I was going to talk about this. Well, I'm going to make good on it. You know, we have a very low tax uh, environment, low tax structure in Alberta. And Budget 23 maintains that low tax structure. Did you know this, that if Alberta had the next lowest tax structure of any other province in the country, and that happens to be Ontario, if Alberta had Ontario's tax structure, as the Minister of Finance, I would be collecting $20 billion more per year in, in tax, tax income, tax revenues. Uh, it's a, that's an amazing number. We have some of the most competitive lowest personal tax rates in the country. We have the lowest business tax rate, certainly lowest general business tax rate in the country. But on top of that, we don't have a sales tax. We don't have a payroll tax. We don't have a capital tax. We don't have a land transfer tax. All of those taxes incrementally add to the tax burden of businesses and individuals in other provinces. So we've maintained that huge competitive advantage from a taxation standpoint in Budget 23. Now, as a small business owner-manager myself, I know this, that small businesses greatly benefit when there's major projects, major investment that comes into the province. Small businesses are able to provide services. Uh, they're, they're able to provide products and goods to, you know, our larger players in the economy. And so when we're seeing investment uh, pour into Alberta, it's good for small businesses. And so, you know, we worked hard from 2019 on to create a very competitive business environment in the province. And we're seeing that payoff. Investment is pouring in, certainly in our traditional resource-based sectors, the energy industry, the forestry industry, two sectors that are really important in the White Court area, but agriculture as well. Moreover, we're seeing diversification in our economy at rates I don't think I've seen in my lifetime. The tech sector is just exploding in the province. Uh, every, financial services are growing at a rate. I'm having trouble keeping staff in my department. They're getting picked off by the private sector. A film and television, as the premier I think noted earlier, is, uh, has gone from a $100 million a year industry to over a billion, providing a lot of opportunity for small businesses, you know, uh, hotels, motels, restaurants right across the province. Again, we've talked about the petrochemical sector, and uh, even manufacturing is uh, growing in this province. You know, de Havilland Air announced they were moving their water bomber manufacturing plant into, into Alberta instead of subsidized Quebec. When I think of aerospace, I think of subsidized Quebec. Well, folks, Alberta's winning on aerospace right now. And so, again, all of this investment, I believe, is adding additional opportunity for our great small businesses in the province. Look, and we will continue to ensure that we work with our great entrepreneurs to, uh, so that Alberta businesses have every opportunity into the future. 
Thanks for that. Next we have Joanne from Edmonton. Go ahead, Joanne. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My my call is in my question is in regards to education. I've been a teacher for the past 38 years and I've seen a, quite a bit of change happen in the classroom over the over the course of my years teaching. And I just want to find out how can we guarantee that that money that you are going to be giving for K to 12 is going to go directly into our classrooms to assist us with the diversity, to assist us with the ongoing needs, um, inclusive uh, classrooms, and the struggles that we deal with on a daily basis. And getting educational assistants that are trained and also providing us with uh, the supports like speech therapists, people that can easily um, help us with mental health and getting the needs that we need immediately for these uh, young, vulnerable children that we are dealing with on a daily basis. Thanks so much, Joanne, for that question. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that we have such a commitment to inclusion in the classroom, and it's resulted in exactly what you're talking about, that complex need. But the, 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 to make inclusion work, you have to have enough people in the classroom to assist in helping to, to, um, to give the dedicated support to those special learners, whether it's extra reading support or if somebody's got high medical needs. And so one of the things that I, I noticed is that the educational assistance is the area where really if we could get more into more classrooms, especially attached to those classrooms with those really complex needs, it would, it would allow for a teacher to, I think, be able to focus on the majority of students while some of those special needs get that extra special attention. So that's part of the reason why when I was running my leadership, I I wanted to, to have a significant amount of money committed to that. So the first step is getting the money committed. Second step is when I talk to the school boards, and I do recently, I do, I do frequently, I just actually spoke to the school boards associations for rural a couple of days ago in Edmonton and made this exact point as well, that it, 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 we do have the school boards implement the, uh, their own priorities on the basis of the dollars we give them. We have said that we want these dollars to go to provide all of those additional supports that you were mentioning, the extra speech pathologists and the EAs. And so... We're very hopeful that that is how the, the school boards are going to spend that money. I will have to, to follow up with Adriana LaGrange to see if there's some way that she can give some more encouragement in that regard. Uh, but the, the main thing is that we've got to make sure that we've got a, a steady flow of people coming into our province so that we can ensure that we can fill some of those gaps. We have 100,000 jobs across our entire economy that have gone unfilled because we don't have enough people to fill them. And it's why we do it, our Alberta's Calling Campaign. That is as much calling public sector workers to come work for us here as it is calling out into the, the general um, uh, community to try to get more of our, our different streams coming through to, to help with medical, to help with uh, technology, to help with agriculture. We, we, we have a... A, a, a ministry called Trade, Immigration, and Multiculturalism. And we were fortunate to also just increase the number of uh, people who, who can come here on a pathway to permanent immigration through our provincial nominee program. We used to be able to do 6,500 people through that pathway. Now we can do almost 10,000. And so as we start developing out more ways of being able to attract people, not only from across the country, but from around the world, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to develop those 
who have the skills needed to, to be able to assist in the classroom. But the first step was making sure that we had the budget allocation, which we did with this most recent budget. I know the, the minister can talk a little bit more about this because this budget really was about putting some significant investments into health and education. So let me hand it over to the finance minister to see if he wants to add more. Well, well Premier, you've really covered covered it well. Uh, I will say uh, $126 million to deal with increasing complexity in the classroom for the very capacity that the Premier noted, additional EAs and, and uh, support staff. Um, and, and let me say this, Joanne, thank you for what you do. You know, my wife's a teacher by profession. I have a daughter who's a teacher. And while neither one of them are actively teaching now, I know the incredible contribution that teachers make really, really to the next generation, preparing the next generation uh, for success. And it's been hard. The last couple of years, it's been hard in the classroom. So thank you for what you do. Um, a, Minister LaGrange has repeatedly raised the need for more funding because of the complexity issues. Budget 23 will deliver that funding. Thanks for that great question and those fantastic answers. Next, we have a question from Michael in Edmonton. To the Premier, why aren't companies responsible for oil well cleanup? They have all the profits and should be responsible. Well, and I, and I agree. I, I know that there has been, again, some confusing of my role prior to getting into public office versus what my role is now. And as, as Premier, my role is to make sure that we clean up all of these existing uh, sites that have either been inactive for a long time or are in some stage of abandonment. And now that we have our energy companies having pretty high profits, they're enjoying high oil and gas prices, the, the decision of the government, which came into place at the beginning of this year, was to mandate that a certain percentage of the, un, of the liability associated with those sites had to be cleaned up each year. So this year, they're required to spend, out of their own profits, $740 million to clean up these sites. And it's going to increase every year. I think it goes up by 9% per year. The, the issue that I have is that I have watched a number of different incentive programs come through, in, including one from the federal level, which was a billion dollars. And we're still not getting at the worst sites in Alberta. We have sites that go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s that have flare pits and sumps and are going to be really complicated cleanups. And they just keep getting passed forward to um, the next company and the next company and the next company. That's the issue that I think we really have to solve. Because number one, I personally, I, I just don't think the regulator should be allowing those, uh, those, those really difficult sites to be passed forward. The company who, who, who uh, created the site and created the pollution should be the one paying for it. But here we are 60 years later, and the company likely holding the liability today is not the one who created it. So we've got to find a way to make sure that we're, we're cleaning up those traditional sites. And some of the things that we've done in the past have been to allow companies to keep more of what they earn to clean up uh, or to, to be able to pay off capital costs, as an example. We, that's a very common approach that we've taken. So if we can incentivize some of these companies to target these absolutely worst wells by allowing them a bit of a tax break on it or a royalty break on it, that's the kind of thing we're exploring. But I, just, I think we owe it to future generations to make sure that we clean up these legacy sites. We have uh, about 20,000 wells that have been uh, inactive for more than 20 years 
and that were drilled prior to 1980, and they still aren't cleaned up. So I've been following this issue since I first got into landowner advocacy back in 1997 and watching somebody else pay the problem forward, but we're going to solve it. We have to, because I, I think that there's an expectation that we're, we're going to do that. So I'm with you. I think that we're doing a lot of things to be able to make that happen. And if we can uh, develop some programs that incentivize us cleaning up the absolute worst wells, then I'm, I'm going to be trying to pursue that. Thanks for that, Premier, and thanks, uh, Michael. Next, we have Monica with an online question. This is for Minister Taves. What's allotted in the budget for infrastructure of roads? Any plans on twinning, uh, you'll like this one, Highway 40 between Grand Prairie and Hinton? All right, I, I do like that question. I, um, I really like it because twinning Highway 40 is a high priority in the Northwest, and, and I need to just make a comment on Highway 40 twinning. We're right now working on twinning the um, probably the most congested part of that highway uh, that uh, starts at Grand Prairie, goes down through the Wapiti River, and uh, and ends up at the 700 Road uh, just in the Grovedale area. That is the most congested part of the highway, and that um, that section is being twinned right now. And of course, that includes a second bridge over the Wapiti. So that's it's a major major project. And I, I have to note, you know, we're we're working and, and we've cooperated with uh, the MD of Greenview and the County of Grand Prairie to speed that uh, project up in the capital plan. And I'm very thankful for that. Now, on top of that, we are continuing uh, our work on Highway 40 further south. Now, long term, we need to twin that whole highway. We, you know, if you live in the Northwest, you know the amount of traffic, you know the amount of heavy traffic that is on that road. It is extremely significant, and so we need to twin the whole highway, but that will take time. Right now, we've increased funding for highway twinning uh, south of Grand Prairie just to ensure that we're inflation-proofing the project that we already have in place. But there's also Highway 40 grade widening between Grand Cash and Hinton. $77 million in this capital plan for that grade widening, and that's very important work. Uh, you know, if you live in Grand Prairie and you drive to Jasper, you know how narrow uh, part of that highway is. And so the $77 million, uh, most of the funds will be spent in the coming summer and the summer of 24-25 to make real progress on widening that highway. I have to say, we're spending almost a billion dollars this year on highways right across the province. That includes twinning Highway 3 down in the south, but it includes a number of other highways. We are, we're doing work on Highway 63 twinning north of Fort McMurray, Highway 60. Again, I've talked about Highway 40. It includes uh, the Vinca Bridge replacement work that's right here uh, in the capital region. So major, major investment in transportation infrastructure. Thanks for that, uh, Minister. And next we're going to Dean from Grand Prairie. Dean, go ahead. Hi, Danielle and uh, Travis. Thanks for uh, having us and this inspiring, proactive approach to government. I uh, agree totally with all your crime uh, issues, healthcare savings, uh, the environmental, the equalization concerns. My only other question is the production of diesel, hydrogen, LNG. 
what is your plan B to export out of Alberta if the Liberal government gets back in and puts an end to the pipelines? Oh, Dean, boy, that's a gloomy prospect for the future. L- let me tell you a couple things that I, I hope will happen. I, I, I hope what will happen is that we'll be able to do work collaboratively with our partners in Western Canada to develop economic corridors so that we can work together on building the infrastructure that we need. And so I've seen some proposals, which I think are tremendous, about how we might be able to build an economic corridor that would go across Saskatchewan and Manitoba to Churchill, or even work with our friends in Ontario to build a little spur line up from the existing Trans-Canada line that would allow it to go to James Bay. Uh, we've, I've, I've, I've talked with our friends in Yukon. They were really keen about a proposal for a rail line that would be Alberta to Alaska, and they want to work with us on helping to find that thoroughfare. Uh, surprisingly, uh, the new NDP premier in British Columbia, uh, David Eby, is quite keen to find ways that we can work together to export LNG. I think that uh, in, in, in British Columbia, at least, that they've realized the incredible economic um, a value of being able to export LNG and also reduce global emissions. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic that at least in this part of the country, in the West, that we'll be able to find a collaborative ways to work with our partners and with First Nations. When, when, when we begin these discussions, and I've, I've already talked to a couple of First Nations consortiums, uh, they, they asked me if they could lead the, uh, the effort in identifying the route. And I, I think that that's going to be the future, that when we have First Nations partnerships with, with us to clear the pathway for uh, where the go zone will be for development, then you can develop roads and rail and trans, uh, transmission infrastructure, broadband, and yes, even pipelines. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that potential prospect. And I, I do believe that as we start talking about other ways to offset emissions, whether it's by capturing the CO2 and burying it underground, or whether it's by getting credit by reducing um, emissions on more polluting fuels internationally, I, I think that we're going to be able to, to change the conversation in Canada. That's what I'm hoping to do. The, the you, You'd mentioned diesel. One of the really interesting developments is the companies that are interested in creating a, a biodiesel. Uh, so we already had an announcement, I believe it was for $720 million for Imperial Oil to address it, to um, to invest in building out in biodiesel refinery. So I think that that's going to be another another option for us in Alberta. So don't be so gloomy. I think we've got the, the, the opportunity, even if we, no matter who ends up getting elected at the federal level, I think that we've got some good opportunity to work with our, our, most, um, our adjacent partners to see if we can find some of those pathways. And, and Dean, if I can... Just just add as well, you know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is a pipeline that I believe is going to get completed. And the plan, they're on schedule at this point to be uh, to hit completion in the fall of this year, the fall of 23, and uh, be filling that line uh, kind of by year end. I believe that uh, it's still on schedule, and that's encouraging because uh, we need more additional pipeline capacity. Coastal, Coastal Gas Link is going forward. Uh, that's going to bring gas into LNG Canada. We're hoping they're going to be doubling uh, LNG Canada's capacity. And if they do that, they're likely going to be draw, have to draw gas from the Alberta side. So there are some positive things going forward in energy in spite of an obstructionist federal government. Thanks so much for that. And uh, next, we're going to go to Suzanne. 
from Edmonton. Go ahead, Suzanne. Hi. I would like to know how this government listened and learned from public outcry to protect Alberta parks in 2020. So this budget looks to cripple our Environmental Conservation Administration and seems to prioritize tourism, recreation, industrial expansion instead, which seems very damaging to our wild spaces. I'll tell you the approach that, that I've taken based on the feedback that I've heard is that the, there's a difference between a park that we use for tourism and hiking and outdoor activities and protected areas. And so that was the, the distinction that I drew in creating the Department of Environment and Protected Lands, which falls under our Environment Minister, Sonia Savage. She's responsible for all of the habitat protection and wildlife monitoring to make sure that we have healthy populations and for our species at risk, making sure that we've got uh, protection so that we have enough intact habitat so that we're maintaining their populations. And that's a vitally important role that hasn't changed. But we also have a lot of areas in Alberta that are open for, for use, whether it's on ski hills or hiking or grappling or cross-country skiing uh, or, or other types of tourism. And that falls under Todd Lowen in, tourism, in forestry, tourism, and parks. And so the, I, I draw a distinction between them. So what you will see in Todd's ministry is that we absolutely are interested in creating more areas where we can build out campgrounds and where we can support trail use. Because I, I fear that we have, in failing to build out more campgrounds in the past 20 years, we're putting too much pressure on the corridor from Calgary to, uh, to Banff. That's, I think, the one that is the, the most under pressure. And that, I think, is not good for the environment. So we want to make sure that we're identifying those areas which are go zones for recreation because we're going to keep on growing and people are going to still continue wanting to enjoy our beautiful outdoors. But we have to have that balance. We have to have those areas where we develop and those areas that we're, where we protect. And that's the approach that I took. I don't know if you want to add any more to that, um, Minister Taves. Premier, you covered it well. Other than that, our budget backs up uh, your assertion. We are adding $8 million uh, to to develop campgrounds and to create additional opportunities uh, in Alberta for uh, for families and individuals who want to enjoy our, our outdoor spaces. Look, we are absolutely blessed as Albertans with just an amazing environment, so much diversity environmentally uh, in, in the province. And we need to ensure we're both protecting that and building it out so Albertans can enjoy it. Thanks so much uh, for that great question, Suzanne, and for the fantastic answers. Next, we have Jake from Edmonton. Go ahead, Jake. Hi. Um, thanks for the, taking my question. Um, my question is for the finance minister. So Alberta is sort of forecasting a little over $2.3 billion um, surplus, uh, which leaves a small cushion um, for anything that comes up. But given sort of the global economic um, forecasts, um, should the floor sort of fall out, what is the backup plan um, should revenues miss our forecasting? Um, are we committing to a sort of deficit spending to keep up with the uh, forecast expenses or are we going to commit to sort of cutting back on expenses to meet so we don't have to deficit the spend? And which expenses get cut first? <laughs> Jake, that's a great that's a great question. These are the questions we grapple with at at Treasury Board. Um, 
that's that's a great question. I, I guess firstly, you're right. We do have, um, you know, we have an economy that's diversifying at significant rates, but we still have an economy that has a very large resource base. And with that resource base comes volatility, as you uh, appropriately point out. And right now, is if we take a look globally at all the events, there's um, a heightened level of volatility uh, than we would normally see. That That's one reason why in our fiscal plan, in our budget, we actually run um, some scenario analysis. We do we run a high energy price scenario and a low energy price scenario so that our readers of the fiscal plan can, you know, can, can see what that does to our revenues. And I'll point out, Jake, our revenues are very, very sensitive to changes in oil prices. About $600 million of revenue for every dollar change in, in West Texas intermediate prices. Significant volatility around the differential as well as around uh, changes in currency. So you raise a good point. Now, the one thing we've done, uh, we have used very conservative estimates for our West Texas intermediate price as well as our differential in currency. Our oil price projections are about 5 to $7 lower than private sector forecasts on average. And that's number one. We need to be very prudential, conservative in our forecasts. Number two, we have a $1.5 billion estimate, or pardon me, contingency. And so uh, that is the uh, other piece that, uh, again, ensures that we have some kind of cushion. Beyond that, in our fiscal rules, we've determined that, uh, in fact, we've laid out in these rules, in the event we have significant drops in revenue, that uh, there's flexibility, necessary flexibility in those rules. And that's gonna, that's important with this kind of a, a revenue structure that we have. You know what? We always need to be uh, delivering government services most efficiently. We always need to be look at, looking at where we can save taxpayers uh, additional costs and keep taxes low. But uh, we built some conservatism, some prudence into the estimates and into this budget. Thanks for that, Minister, and uh, I believe that uh, we are coming near the end of our time tonight. Minister, would you like to take 60 seconds to wrap up, and, and followed by Premier Danielle Smith. Sure, I'm glad to make a few comments, Whitney. Uh, thank you, and, and thank you all for joining tonight. Uh, you know, within every question, there's often an assertion built in, a perspective built in, and um, your assertions have been heard. You know, we, we've heard many perspectives tonight. All of that has been helpful. And it's been great to discuss the priorities of Albertans and the details of Budget 23 with you tonight. Look, um, we face challenges. There's, we're, we're dealing with a time of inflation, inflation at levels we've not seen for decades. We have additional geopolitical tension and uncertainty right now globally. Of course, that uh, has an impact on the province of Alberta. And we're, we're also, you know, facing other pressures with uh, constrained supply chains. And all of that is affecting Alberta's economy. It's affecting our ability to make the end of the month for our households and, and our business competitiveness. You know, we've worked hard over the last three years to make progress on the economy. We've worked really hard to bring this province back to uh, fiscal responsibility. And together, as Albertans, uh, we have made great progress. 
We now have an economy that's leading the nation in real GDP growth this year and next. We created together, entrepreneurs in this province created 92,000 jobs in 2022 alone. Almost 25% of all the jobs created in the nation were created right here in Alberta. We've talked about our diversifying economy, and that's great news for Albertans today and great news for the next generation of Albertans. And we've also brought fiscal responsibility, again, together uh, to the province. We brought, we've eliminated the $10 billion overspend, the $10 billion spending differential that we had with the other large provinces uh, in Canada. We set a goal to, to eliminate that differential. Um, mission accomplished as of 22-23. And I had the privilege of presenting the second balanced budget right through the fiscal plan to ensure that we're not robbing from the next generation, to ensure that we're making responsible fiscal decisions so the next generation is not encumbered. This year, we're adding fiscal rules which will provide guardrails for future governments, again, to ensure that we can be delivering sound, solid fiscal management. So, yep, you bet. We're facing some challenges. And we've had some ups and downs in our economy over the years. But folks, I can I can say this um, in all honesty. I really believe, from my perspective, after looking at all of our opportunities, that Alberta's best days are ahead. It's been a, pre- a privilege to join you tonight and a privilege to uh, serve you as Alberta's finance minister. Well, what a difference a number of years make. When I when I look back on what our finance minister had to navigate through, there was one year that he was facing a potential $20 billion budget deficit because uh, things were not going our way on so many fronts. And here we are just a couple short years later, and, and we're looking at not only uh, record surpluses, but uh, also the, the potential for surpluses well into the future. And, and that creates a, a new set of challenges. We, we need to make sure that we don't spend every single dollar of resource revenue that comes in, because if we do end up with a little instability in the future and we've increased our revenues or increased our, our expenses too much or we've reduced our, our other sor- sources of revenue too much, we're going to end up with the same problem. So I, what I love the most about this budget is that we limit, your, we, we limit operational increases to inflation plus population growth so that we know that it's going to be sustainable in the long run. The, the finance minister did the heavy lifting of making sure our program spending got brought into alignment with the other big provinces, BC, Ontario, and Quebec, and so that helps. But we are also now on a track to become debt-free eventually. We can see that in our sites and also increase our, our savings so that we can ultimately generate enough new source of income so that we can get off that revenue roller coaster for good, as well as investing in capital. Because we know that as we grow as a province, as more and more people want to move here and more and more people do, we still have to build schools and hospitals. We have to make sure we're hiring teachers and education assistants, doctors, nurses, and paramedics. And so, we what I what what I think is you, you should what I think you should take heart in with this budget is that not only do we follow the conservative principles of budgeting, but we're also making the significant investments in all of the services that Albertans care so much about. So I'm, I'm delighted to get your feedback. I hope you think we got it uh, we got it right on this one, and, and we'd be delighted to hear more from you. I'll hand it back over to Whitney Isaac. Thank you so much, Premier Danielle Smith, Minister Travis Taves, and thank you to all of you who have joined us this evening. It was great to hear all of your thoughts and ideas. And if you want more information about Budget 2023, simply head to alberta.ca forward slash budget.
Thank you again for joining us this evening, and enjoy the rest of your night.